I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background on the actors, the director, and perhaps, hopefully, a half-amusing antidote or two for you to enjoy. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you'd like to be surprised, please stop this podcast, give the film a view before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, I would hope you'd go on and recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. It's July, and we are continuing this month's theme, asking the very simple question, what's your fantasy? Covering a smattering of fun films that are all within the fantasy genre. This week, we'll be featuring the basic cable classic, The Beastmaster. Join us! Growing up in the 80s and 90s, we taped a lot of what we saw from TV directly. My dad would program the VCR to tape reruns of The Muppet Show that would air on WGN at 5 in the morning, just so we could watch them later. My aunt would do the same thing with Saturday morning cartoons, with a special focus on taping Pee Wee's Playhouse. And while we did our fair share of renting movies and getting tapes from the library, most of the movies we saw were films that had been edited and taped from the TV broadcast. And since we would watch them ad nauseum, we would become very familiar with commercials that were recorded. I mean, living in the Chicagoland area, you already had those local commercials burned into your mind. But, for example, I know when Linda Carter stops singing her song, Orange Colored Sky, uh, on the Muppets, I'm all of a sudden going to cut to seeing a Salozzi Edelson Chevrolet commercial. You know, it's on the corner of York and Roosevelt Road, where you always save more money. It may as well have been a part of the song. I mean, smash cut again. My dad, in an effort to be helpful, WGN would play its Saturday afternoon movie of the week, and one week it was The Muppet Movie. Yeah, we were a hardcore Muppet household, and I say that proudly. So, picture it, it's the Muppet movie, and right after the gang procures the new car, when they leave Madman Mooney, that's played by Milton Berle, his used car lot, it just cuts to a commercial. And that is where a young, impressionable six-year-old Chris was treated to a commercial for the next week's Saturday movie. It's a low-lit shot, fire, candlelight, quick cuts, almost sepia-toned. Shadows, wizards, a half-naked woman, a berserker screaming and running at the camera, and a warrior striking a dramatic pose with a sword, standing next to a roaring panther. A purple placard with a weird superimposed picture of Mark Singer then pops up, promising me that if I tune in, I will get to see the Beastmaster. At that moment, I was sold that this was something I needed to see. 
So of course, I immediately got to make the selection of the picture the next time we were at the local video store, right? Hell no! My parents were, at least about the stuff they knew I was watching, very hands-on. And while they may not have known a lick about the picture, a good rule of thumb seemed to be that if it looked like it was going to be good from my kid point of view, it was probably going to be a, no, you aren't old enough to see this. So, PG rating or not, it was a hard no. That is to say, it was a no until I went to that bastion of childhood discovery. A sleepover at a friend's place. Sure, let the boys watch Beastmaster. Looks good. Animals, sorcerers, swords, and hey, it's PG. Perfect. So, two things come out of this. First, I became ultra aware that the very cool stylized promo that WGN used to hype their broadcast of the film was not what this movie was in reality. Second, at this point I had not seen Charlie's Angels reruns, but I can tell you, Tanya Roberts was officially my favorite Charlie's Angel. God bless the pre-1984 MPAA code and curse the creation of that PG-13 rating because I was exposed to some delightful gratuitous nudity for the day. You hear that, kids? What do you have to say for yourselves? D oh, you have the internet now. You, like, actively have to avoid naked people on a daily basis. T Touché. Well, enough of making people who know me uncomfortable. Let's talk about the why of this film. This, oddly enough, is not considered to be a Conan ripoff, because they both were in development around the same time and released in the same year. Although it still does check the box as being a sword and sandal picture, it was actually adapted from a 1959 novel by Andre Norton. The plot was turned into a fantasy story rather than a sci-fi story which focused on source material involving a Native American soldier who could telepathically communicate with genetically altered animals in an off-world adventure. Totally sounds realistic, I know. The selection of Don Corscarelli, who was no stranger to genre pictures, after all the man made Phantasm and Bubba Hotep to future episodes for certain. Uh, and his selection was a solid one. He revamped the story and adapted it into a more logical screenplay with writer-producer Paul Pepperman. Mark Singer was cast to be our main hero, and this is still a time when Mark Singer was relatively unknown here in the States. Uh, this was right before the TV miniseries V had started, which would actually propel him to fame, both in the movie itself and then starring on the show. Actor Rip Torn actually was called in to replace Klaus Kinski as the villain uh, Max, which I think Kinski immediately would have been a great baddie, but this is a better call, because Rip Torn is just awesome. 
throw in John Amos, and I don't know what he was doing here, honestly, and the aforementioned lovely Roberts, and what you have is a pretty talented pool to work with for at least a fantasy picture. So, I guess let's stop dancing around and just get things rolling. Let's take a look at this trailer. It was foretold by witches. It was conceived through sorcery. And it was to be destroyed by all that is evil. But the courage of one mortal saved it. And so, into an age of darkness, in a time of mysticism, sacrifice, and plunder, there came the only light, the Beastmaster. Born with the strength of a black tiger, the courage of an eagle, the power that made him more than any hero. More than any lover. Lord and master over all beasts. He was the beast master. Behold the wonder, the horror, the fantasy, the challenge of the one warrior they called the beast master. Mark Singer is Dar. Tanya Roberts is Carrie. Riptorn is Mayak. John Amos is Seth. Together they take us on a fascinating journey back into unexplored times. Conquer your fears. Face the unknown. And discover the incredible link between man, animal, and all that is phantasmagorical. Dungeons, dragons, and Dar. The Beastmaster. The epic adventure of a new kind of hero. Okay, so off the bat, at least as far as this picture goes, we really don't know where this film properly takes place. It, it's later to be revealed that it's an alternate dimension in the sequels, but for this picture, we just know this is in the far-off distant kingdom known only as Arak. And in that kingdom, there is a scheming high priest who goes by the name of Mayok. I'm going to have to do a sidebar here. Mayok is spelled M-A-A-X. I have heard many, many, many people mispronounce it and call it Max. And I used to complain, except I realized how easy it is to do when Max is spelled before you and you don't naturally tend to call it Mayock. So if I do at any point in time say Max, I truly apologize. I know it is not the proper pronunciation. That being said, I will return you back to the normal description. Ahem. Where the scheming high priest Mayok, as played by Rip Torm, learns that it is prophesied that he will die in a confrontation with the son of King Zed. Mayok plans to sacrifice the child to the god Ar, but before his treachery is exposed, he and his sect of followers are banished from the kingdom before he can carry any of his plans through. In the background, a witch 
working for Mayok, manages to infiltrate the castle and transfers the child through magical means, magical means being some sort of glowing blue goop, applies this and moves the child from the queen's womb into the womb of a cow. That being said, born of a cow, the child is branded with the mark of R to identify him to Mayok as a future sacrifice. I gotta say, this seems an awful amount of work to do just to keep a kid from toppling your dark plans. Hey, here's a thought. Change those dark plans. You know, you got some time. The kid's gotta grow up. There's, we're talking 20 years here. You know, you could move on, take over a different kingdom. Yeah, I, Just a thought. Either way, the witch is thankfully killed by some good villagers who then take the child in and raise him as their own in the peaceful village of Emer. I, I hope you're still with me so far, because it's going to start to get rather complicated. We know what she's about. thirsty eyes. Unborn son will die. The truth cannot be changed. He will die tonight. Rise for King Zed. I have been told you are planning a child's sacrifice. R demands the life. Of an unborn. I will not allow the sacrifice of an innocent. You are banished for life. In Arak, no one will remember your name. Go practice your heathen religion in the outlands with the barbarian Johns. The unborn child is yours. Then fast! Okay, for example, let's just get into how Dar discovers that he has the power to communicate with animals. He's hanging out with his adopted father, you know, bonding the way guys do, learning to throw this complex bladed device when he realizes he can sense that there's a bear in the area. And he doesn't bother to warn a neighbor that's out there. Instead, he tells dear old dad. So, of course, the neighbor is attacked. What? 
to be fair, he's attacked by a bush that's making bear noises, because clearly this didn't have a proper bear attack budget. But then, after the neighbor's body is thrown, an actual bear enters the clearing, and Dar does his squinty-eyed mind meld with it, allowing the bear to leave them in peace. His father explains to him that he needs to keep this gift a secret, but I'm kind of guessing he just doesn't want to explain this whole thing to the local authorities. But, hey, what do I know? So, you know, time passes on as it does. And, of course, suddenly, Dar is a grown man and is now portrayed by Mark Singer. And he's working the crops with the rest of the villagers. That is, at least until a bloodthirsty group of Juns, a horrific warlike people, show up and raise his village, murdering his friends and adoptive family. By the time Dar returns to the fields, more than half of the place is up in flames, and he is only able to, quote-unquote, angry kill a few invaders before he is knocked out and left for dead by a Jun warrior. His loyal dog, who himself is wounded, drags him to safety from the burning village. We also get to see that Mayok is now the spiritual leader of the Juns, riding with them and coordinating the village attack. Dar wakes up to find himself hurt, but alive, his faithful companion dead by his side. He returns to the smoldering village and places his deceased dog next to his father, reclaiming the family sword, the throwing blade, and then decides to burn the bodies in a respectable funeral pyre. 
it's here that Dar encounters an eagle who he befriends and names Sharik. During his time in the wilderness, he ends up befriending two thieving ferrets that he names Kodo and Podo. And then a panther, who in reality is a tiger dyed black, he names Rue. Oddly enough, when deciding to travel alone, he suddenly no longer needs to have things like a shirt or a jerkin or pants, which he had on when he was, you know, working the fields. So he now just travels the wilderness in leather underwear with a sword across his back. So Dar just does that. He wanders, killing random juns and enjoying his animal friends. It's on his wandering that he encounters a beautiful escaped slave girl named Kiri, as played by Tanya Roberts, while she is bathing and decides that he's going to save her from an encounter with Rue. Because the ladies love it when you lead them to believe that they're going to be devoured by a 1,200-pound cat. Kiri thanks him, but explains she can't stay with all of them, as she's a wanted as an escaped slave. There's this really weird moment that she shows off her whip marks to highlight what they're going to do to her. Dar does offer to protect her, but she decides the best course of action is to quickly return home to her family so that they won't be injured or killed. All that said, Dar, instead of following her, continues on with his adventures and wandering, and he comes across this really creepy flock of birdmen, although honestly they look more like these deformed fleshy bats. They surely would kill him, at least judging by all the bones of the dead men around them, yet he somehow wins a place within their good graces by calling Shark to him, which then causes them both to spare his life and seemingly swear some kind of form of allegiance to him via an amulet that they gift him. Sufficiently creeped out, but continuing to press on, Dar goes further on his quest to find and kill Juns. Meanwhile, Mayok has somehow heard about the exploits of this master of beasts, and he sends his zealot priest assassins to kill Dar. But Dar and company are able to kill any of these would-be threats, um, eventually, though, getting the help of two so-called pilgrims, Seth, is played by John Amos, and Tal is played by Josh Milrud. Is he yours? We fight together sometimes. <laughs> and I hope someday to be able to repay your kindness. Life is a circle. I'm sure we'll see each other again. Friends. Who are you? I'm Dar. Of the Emerites. There are no more Emerites. Thanks to the Juns, I'm the last. Juns. Who are you, friend? And where do you come from? I'm called Seth. This is Tao. We are pilgrims on our way to worship at the Temple of Ar. I've never seen a pilgrim who could use a staff the way you did. Uh, but, sir, all pilgrims share a deep love of life. 
Especially their own. I, too, am on my way to worship at the Temple of Ar. There's safety in numbers. Perhaps we should travel together. Seth and Tal are on their way to worship at a distant temple and oppose the Juns. Dar learns that Tal and Kiri are actually cousins, and that makes their goal one and the same, to save her from being just another slave sacrifice for Mayok. They do end up finding and saving Kiri from a band of Mayok's loyal priest warriors and escape downriver by way of ferry that they cut loose. Dar then learns Tal is really the son of King Zed, who is trying to restore his father to glory and free the kingdom from the terror that Mayok has imposed upon them by way of manipulating the Jun Horde. Dar tells him Kiri needs to convince him, but hey, I'm no prude, but forcing a woman to make out with you seems wildly wrong, especially when people's lives are on the line. Of course, our hero announces that he will help this party and continues downriver towards Mayok's stronghold in the Taran Valley. Seth ends up separating from the group to get more help, while Dar, Kiri, and Tal infiltrate Mayok's temple. There, they encounter the Death Guards, which are honestly the most bizarre and homoerotic villains I have seen in a fantasy film. They're these mindless slaves that are apparently kept in a state of greased-up frustration. Wearing odd leather masks, they have assless chaps, and they blindly rush towards their perceived enemies to destroy them. They discover a now-blind King Zed is a prisoner in Maox's dungeon, and they rescue him. They defeat several of the elite warriors and kill a number of evil witches in the process. No. Taking back your city is not the answer. If you succeed in killing Mayax and the priests, you will only bring down the wrath of the Jun Horde. I've seen what they can do. You need an army. Who is this man? He is a friend. He is the Beastmaster. must listen to him. He has already saved your life. The whole group does escape, but King Zed is angry and arrogant as to how to react to the situation. Rather than heed Dar's warning against attacking Maox directly, he disparages the man who can talk to Beast and forces him out of the camp, much to his companion's disappointment. 
Dar later gets word that after his departure, Maox's forces swept into the city of Arak and captured the king and his friends. Learning that they are to be sacrificed to the god Ar, Beastmaster returns to the city to face off against the high priest at his temple. Maox reveals to Dar and to Zed that it is Dar who is the heir to Arak, his long-lost son, horrifying Dar and hurting Zed right before he's murdered. Before Maox can kill Dar, Kodo leaps out of his satchel and attacks the high priest, forcing him to spin back and fall over the parapet and into the sacrificial fire pit. Now, after all of this, Dar doesn't really seem all that concerned to learn that Kiri is his cousin, and that he's essentially been blackmailing her for sexual favors this entire time. Even with Maox killed, the Jun Horde rolls in to attack the city. Dar sets up some fortifications and rallies the survivors to face off against the Horde, holding the chieftain and the warriors back essentially by setting the moat on fire? It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Of course, in the end, it's only Dar, Kiri, and Seth fighting in front of the entire city while everyone else watches from behind the wall. At least beforehand, Dar had the foresight to hand the medallion that the weird fleshy birdmen gave him and send Sharik off to summon them. So right around the time that it's looking like the heroes aren't going to come out on top, that's exactly when those birdmen come. And they flop in and start snatching up members of the Jun Horde and liquefying them before everyone's eyes. Dar knows that he's heir to this kingdom, but he makes sure to pass his birthright onto his brother Tal, convinced that the young man has all the makings of being a great king. Taking his now girlfriend cousin with him, he is happy to find that Poto has given birth to two baby ferrets, so the Beastmaster, with girlfriend and animals in tow, departs to explore the world and have new adventures. Hey, it's a happy ending. We haven't had one of those in a while, and, um... It, yeah, no, you, you really still can't wash the weird off of it, no matter how hard you try. But still, good times. The Beastmaster was to have a holiday opening for Christmas of 1982, but it was announced that there was a takeover by the domestic rights of United Artists, moving up the film's release to August instead. With a budget of $9 million, it ended up earning $14 million worldwide at the box office. Not a rousing success per se, but it lived on and garnered a cult following as it had a wide distribution on cable TV, showing first on HBO, which comedian Dennis Miller had joked, hey, Beastmaster's on, and then later, due to its heavy rotation and airplay on the Turner networks, uh, particularly in TBS, so much so that the joke was TBS was short for the Beastmaster Station. Only TNT was spared a cutesy acronym, but Beastmaster still played there as well. 
it ended up spawning two sequels, both starring Mark Singer. The first was 1991's Beastmaster 2 Through the Portal of Time, which I will proudly say I saw in the summer of 1995 with my brother on TBS. Living up to the cable hype, it was awful. As well as a made-for-TV direct to video sequel called Beastmaster 3 The Eye of Braxis, which debuted in 1996. Happy to say I've never seen that one. Later, in 1999, with the success of Xena Warrior Princess and Hercules The Legendary Journeys, Beastmaster debuted as a TV series which ran up until 2002. Which was successful enough, but at the end of the day, isn't that what we're all just looking for? Just enough success to keep things afloat? Get yourself a series that gets stripped and then will pay off residuals for the rest of your life? Ah, the American dream in action. I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Sadly, this last week saw the passing of Rip Torn, our own Mayox, which is a tragedy for lovers of cult films. He was born Elmore Rural Rip Torn, and he hailed from Temple, Texas. He started his acting career studying under the great Lee Strasberg, and ended up making his way to star in the original cast of Tennessee Williams' Sweet Bird of Youth. He had his big break playing Judas Iscariot in the film King of Kings in 1961. He ended up portraying the millionaire poker player who pressures Steve McQueen during a high-stakes game in The Cincinnati Kid, which is absolutely going to be a future episode. He also played the manipulative Dr. Bryce in The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976 opposite of the great David Bowie. He was also the scummy record producer in the Paul Simon self-serving rock and roll autobiographical film, One Trick Pony. He was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor award in his role in 1983's Cross Creek, but in my mind, the role that defined Rip Torn, at least in my relationship with him, was his turn as Sheriff Hank Pearson in the Walter Hill, Sam Peckinpah-inspired 1987 film, Extreme Prejudice. He is only briefly in this film as Nick Nolte's mentor, but he steals every scene he's in, which is crazy since this is a massive cast of character actors. Shit sounds reasonable. Just sit down and talk to him about how you shot his brother night before last. I'm going around the back way. I'll stay out here with Arturo and watch the front. Right, sir? Yes, sir. Arturo, get right over there while I keep an eye on you. What's funny is my favorite role of Torn's was in the Albert Brooks 1991 comedy, All About the Afterlife. Defending Your Life, where Torn was Brooks's put-upon defense attorney in a purgatory-esque judgment city, trying to convince a panel that his client has what it takes to move on to the next level of existence. 
In short, it's this cantankerous adversarial moment for him that just sets the tone so well and really makes Brooke's neuroses pop against Torn's stark anger. Sit down, my friend. What are you looking at? What's wrong? You, you look good in that tupa. Some people don't, but you do. It's flattering to you. Thanks. So, is this what you thought it would be? Thought what would be? Where am I? Is this heaven? No, it isn't heaven. Is it hell? No, it isn't hell either. Actually, there is no hell. Although I hear Los Angeles is getting pretty close. (laughs) Well, Daniel, let me tell you what's going on. When you're born into this universe, you're in it for a long, long time. You have many different lifetimes. And after each lifetime, there's an examining period which you're in now. You see, every second of every lifetime is always recorded. And as each one ends, we sort of look at it. Look at a few of the days, examine it. And then if everybody agrees, you move forward. What do you mean move forward? I mean move forward, continue onward. The point of this whole thing is to keep getting smarter, to to keep growing, to use as much of your brain as possible. For example, I use 48% of my brain. Do you know how much you use 47? <laughs> three. I'm sorry? Three? I use three percent of my brain? Yes, don't worry about it. Everybody on Earth uses three percent of their brain. Three to five percent. That's why they're there. Three? Three percent? Three percent? You mean nobody on Earth uses more than that? When you use more than five percent of your brain, you don't want to be on Earth, believe me. Well, not that your takeout places aren't lovely, but there are many more exciting destinations for smarter people. Now, being from Earth as you are and using as little of your brain as you do, your life has pretty much been devoted to dealing with fear. It has? Well, everybody on Earth deals with fear. That's what little brains do. What are little brains? That's what we call you folks behind your back. Now it's funny, for folks that are my age, you know Torn from one of three films. He starred as the deadly serious Zed from 1997's Men in Black, as well as the first sequel. Or you had the unfortunate turn to follow him as James Jim Brody, the father of Tom Green's Gordon Brody from the 2001 train wreck that was Freddy Got Fingered. I don't even have the energy to get into that right now. Suffice to say, that is time I'm not getting back. That being said, a lot of people just know Rip Torn from his character in Dodgeball, which still to this day just gives me a chuckle. Then you've 
got to learn the five D's of dodgeball. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. If you master the five D's, no amount of balls on earth can hit you. Quebec, go ahead. Me or... Yeah, um, shouldn't we, like, learn by dodging balls that are thrown at us, or...? That's what this sack of wrenches is for. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Regardless of how he was introduced to us, Rip Torn was a character actor and a cult staple. Thus, he is a star here as far as Linden Street is concerned. So I'd just like to say, rest in peace Mr. Torn, you have absolutely earned it. The version of the Beastmaster we screened here at the LSCE is the 2005 Dynamax Special Edition release of the one and only Anchor Bay. It's simply loaded with goodies. It has a documentary about the making of the film that includes interviews with the director, producer, and cast, audio commentary by the director, trailers, production stills, photos, advertising art, and more. You get to learn all kinds of interesting tidbits, you know, like how you can dye a tiger black because it's way easier to use a tiger dipped in black ink than it is to have a real Black Panther worked on set, which is also inclined to kill you. Hearing information behind the scenes, such as interesting gossip, like how they were going to originally have the role of Maox go to Klaus Kinski. Hey, it was the early 80s, everybody wanted have that mean old sociopath working for them but because they couldn't reach an agreement upon salary he ended up passing and we got the wonderful rip torn so it it all worked out in the end i assure you and this is the kind of great stuff you get to learn by getting yourself some physical media which currently this film retails on amazon for the low low price of just eleven dollars and two cents so how can you pass such a deal up and folks, I just want to reiterate, we don't get anything here for making a recommendation, but we just want to encourage people to continue to buy and support physical media so these fine film companies will keep releasing the wonderful studio prints that they, we know they have and that we love to buy. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. We just want to get our films. And you do too. Besides, it's a lot of fun. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at The Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at the LSCE underscore podcast. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an iTunes user, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. If you want to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please 
email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com, all one word. Or send us an audio message by way of Anchor. It's so easy, and we would love to hear from you. And hey, sending an audio message, you may end up on a future episode of the show. So until next time, please take care out there. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, everybody.